Good morning, and welcome to First Belton. My name is Josh Stewart, and this is my wife, Lacey. I have the privilege to serve as worship pastor here. Before we get the service started today, there are a few things we want to share with you. First of all, next weekend, March 1st through 3rd, our students are participating in DNOW. If you are not familiar with DNOW, it is a discipleship weekend for students throughout our entire community. Our students stay in host homes to study scripture together and build community. At night, they gather with other youth groups from around the city to, for worship services at UMHB. There are almost 130 people from students to group leaders to host homes involved from our church. We wanna ask you to commit these students and this weekend to prayer. We have created a prayer guide that you can access through the e-bulletin or realm with specific prayer points to follow along with as you pray. We are expecting God to do a great work in the lives of our students and your prayers will pave the way to make that happen. Our summer mission trip teams are in the process of recruiting folks to come serve. Our mission trip leaders will be in the foyer and near Mission Central after the service to answer any questions you might have about trip details. Now I wanna highlight one of the trips that we are taking to Moldova. We have a need for more people to go serve on these trips. If you sense God is leading you to go on mission trip and serve, this would be a great choice. In fact, this would be a good trip for families to go and serve together. After the service, go find a trip leader at Mission Central and ask how you can get involved. Going on mission can not only change the lives of the people that you're going to serve, but it can also change your lives. Lastly, one of the ways we worship God is through our giving. First Chronicles 29, 12 says, Riches and honor come from you, O Lord, and you are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Everything that we have comes from God, and he asks us to give a portion of that back to him through tithes and offerings as an act of worship. It is a joy to give back to the one who has given us everything we have. And I encourage you to participate in that joy by giving to the Lord in worship today. My good friend, Jeremy Basil, will be leading in worship this morning. In just a few moments, I want you to give him a great first belt and welcome. As we begin our time of worship through singing, scripture, and the preaching of the word, I invite you to draw in and worship with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's go. Good morning, church. We're so glad you're here this morning. Would you stand up on your feet? Let's worship together. Let's put those hands together this morning. Come on. We believe there's joy in this place. We worship the God who was. We worship the God who is. We worship the God who
Hey, thank you guys so much for singing in worship. Can you go ahead and take a seat for just a moment? Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm glad to see you. If you're a guest with us, um, or even if you're a member, there's a connection card in the pew rack in front of you. I would encourage you to scan that QR code. Uh, you can find out all the information about our church, how to get plugged in, how to know, serve, and share him. And we're just excited to be here this morning to worship and to gather together um, and to celebrate who God is this morning. Um, I, want, I want to go ahead and just, as we continue in worship, I just want to invite you to bow your head, close your eyes, and for a moment, I just want you to just think on, meditate on, who God is, his character, what he's done, and who he is. Let's just be still for a moment and just think on God and his character. As we continue to pray and as an act of worship, I want to ask us to do something a little different. I promise it'll be okay. What I want to ask us to do as we continue to pray and as you have just reflected on who God is, his character, I want us out loud to declare who he is all over this place. I just want us to fill in the sentence, God, you are. God, you, you are all of this and more. And Almighty God, we, we come before you this morning in your holy presence, understanding who we are, our weaknesses, our unworthiness. But we're also overwhelmed by your unspeakable greatness, your majesty, your holiness. We're in awe of who you are. We thank you, God, for making yourself known to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, for pardoning our rebellion against you through the sacrifice Christ on the cross. We thank you for being our God, the only God. And this morning, God, we praise the Lamb who was slain, has risen, and is now at your right hand. And Jesus, 
this morning. Help us to, to grasp the immensity of who you are and what you've done for us. And then to believe it. Lord, to believe it with our whole heart, our whole soul, our mind, and our strength. Because God, the, Jesus, the, the, mo the most important thing about us is what we believe about you. May the May the wonder of your love this morning cause awe, obedience, hope, and rejoicing in us this morning. Jesus, you are our foundation of hope. And all glory, honor, majesty and dominion are yours now and forever in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray amen well, hey again my name is Jeremy and it's great to be here with you guys this morning I'm filling in for uh, my friend and your worship leader Josh Stewart while he and Lacey are away this weekend we're going to continue to worship would you guys stand up on your feet Let's continue to sing together. Christ is my firm foundation.
In John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness. And yet, the darkness has not overcome it.
church, we believe that this morning. We're gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. We believe that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. This morning, God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to worship you, a holy God. We give you all the praise and glory because you're worthy. And it's in Jesus' great name that we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you guys so much for worshiping with us and singing together. Go ahead and take a seat. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul invites us to reflect on the foundations we're building our lives upon. He warns against the dangers of a faulty foundation built upon disunity, immorality, and ultimately defiance of God. Paul makes it clear that a strong foundation is built on Jesus Christ, and apart from his strength, we will crumble. We are all a work in progress. God created us as vessels to glorify him, and the choices that we make and the relationships we pursue affect the condition of our foundation. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We are made in the image of God, and what we choose to do with our bodies matters. The way we treat our bodies either glorifies God or glorifies us. Jesus redeems the world's distorted view of sexuality and sanctifies our relationships with each other. Whether God has called you to build a life through the gifts of singleness or marriage, his design is greater than any blueprint we create for ourselves. We must reflect on the foundations we are laying and understand that a life built upon God's truth is filled with unexplainable joy, peace, and beauty. Hey, good morning. How are we? Great to be with you this morning. I had to sneak back and grab a water because I lost my voice singing so loud. So, goodness. So here we are. Great to be with you this morning. Great to see all your faces. Great to hear you sing as always. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord today. So um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. We're going to cover the first half of chapter 6. Next week we'll cover the back half. So we'll be in verses 1 through 11. Uh, now before we dive into the Word, I've got a fun announcement that I want to share with you about the all-in initiative that we've been working up to. Um, I promised you that I would do what I'm going to do today. Um, and that's to give you an announcement as to where we are in the process um, Last month, we invited about seven different contractors to come and to bid upon our project, our uh, new building. And out of those seven, four of them made it to an interview table. And we interviewed four different contractors that were very qualified, great folks, great organizations. And through that process, both through prayer, interviews, discussions, and all of that, we have narrowed it down to one. And so that's a huge thing for our church. That means now we can start building a timeline and making a beeline towards our goal of, of building a new church building. Um, I want to tell you why we chose them. Because I think it's important that you know and that you not only feel like you're a part of the process, because, but, but that you are a part of the process. So the reason why we chose the contractor that we did was because first and foremost, they love the Lord and every one of them loves the church. And that's pretty awesome. It's a Christian company. Uh, they love the Lord. They love the church. All of them are in, highly involved in their churches. 
um, much of many of them are involved in leadership in their churches, which is just in, you know incredible to know that that that's you know the, the foundation that they stand on. When they're building, they're not just building a church; they're building God's church, and that's important. You know, so that's that's really great. Um, a couple of other things that are important about this this company is they have been in business with our architectural firm for over 18 years. So they come with a wealth of experience. They do nothing well. They they build other things, but they're Bread and butter are churches, so that's what they specialize in. And quite frankly, that's what we need. To be able to get where we want to go, we need somebody who, who knows how to get us there, and they can do that. Um, they have a kingdom stewardship philosophy with the way that they handle money. That was very important to me, uh, right? So when we're asking them questions and talking about what is their you know, relationship to money and how does that work and in the building process... Uh, they recognize that the money that has been given to them and entrusted to them to build a building is not their money. It's God's money. And that's important. They recognize that it comes from the sacrifices of the men and women and uh, students in this room. And so when they look at building a building, they're not just looking at building a Taj Mahal. They're, they're looking at building God's church, God's building with God's dollars, with God's people's money. Which means uh, they feel like they're held accountable to the Lord. So not only are they held accountable to us, but they're held accountable to the Lord. And so that's, that's great. Uh, there's another thing that you need to know. There's a, a deal that they call the Ministry of Construction. Ministry of Construction. You're going to hear a lot more about this in the days ahead. But a Ministry of Construction is, is where they're going to come in and they're going to help us as a church come together and serve the people who are going to be actually doing the building of the church. And what we're going to do is we're going to go serve those folks who are... The, you know, the subcontractors, the various men and, that are going to take part in building this church, we're going to go love them. Lord willing, we'll get opportunities to share the gospel with them. We're going to provide meals for them. We're going to, I don't know, maybe wash their trucks. Who knows what we're going to do, but we're going to go love them well. And Lord willing, some people will come to know Christ, and we will have a ministry that we would have never had apart from being able to build a building. So really exciting stuff. And they lead point on that, by the way. That's not even us. <laughs> they lead point on that. That's the kind of company that we're partnering with. And so we're grateful that the Lord has crossed our path with them. So the next step is to come with a timeline. So we don't know a timeline yet, but Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to find out what a tentative timeline will be. And so you're, the next announcement that you'll have for me, Lord willing, will be in a couple of weeks to a month, give or take. We're going to come with a timeline. I don't want to give you a, just a hypothetical. I want to give you a, a pretty good idea of what you can expect. And so right now, I, all, I can, I, all I can do is give you some hypotheticals, and that's not helpful for anybody. So um, I'm gonna, we're going to get a, a, a harder plan together, and, and, and I'll bring that to you here in the next few weeks. Sound good? Awesome. Cool. Okay, let's get to the Word. That's why we're here. Okay, so... 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're covering verses 1 through 11. Briefly talk about last week so that we kind of know where we're at this week. So last week, you may recall that in this series, we're in a messy church series. That's the whole theme of 1 Corinthians, how Paul is taking a messy church and making it a beautiful church, right? He's showing how all these things have happened in the church and how the gospel transforms them into something uh, that they were not, right? It's taking something messy and making it beautiful. It's a really great, great book. Now, out of that book, there are about five different subtopics, right? And those subtopics are based on the problems that the church in Corinth was experiencing. The first one being division. 
They had a, had a really distorted view of leadership, and their distorted view of leadership was causing divisions in the church, which was causing a mess. It was a mess. Last week, we made a transition into the second thing that was plaguing the church. And honestly, it's a distorted view of what it means to be a human, what it means to um, have healthy sexual relationships, right? There's all kinds of things that have broken out in Corinth, and, and, and they have a very distorted view of sexuality. And so Paul is writing to correct that, to help give them a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview of what it means uh, to have a, uh, a healthy view of sexuality, how to relate well to one another. And I think that's super important because just like in Paul's day, in, in the day of Corinth, um, man, they lived in a really sexually obsessed culture, kind of like ours. I mean, everything from media. I mean, all you have to do is watch the commercials and it's just I mean, it's just right there. It's out and open. You know, 50 years ago, the things that you see in commercials would, I mean, golly, I can't even imagine what they would, what they would think, right? It's how major of a difference it's been in just 50 years, right? So we live in this culture. We need to know what does a healthy view of sexuality really look like, specifically from the Bible. What does the Bible say? Now, we also talked about last week, we heard from Paul's heart that a healthy church must do hard things to continue to grow, to remain healthy, and to offer a credible witness to the community. One of the things that you're going to see all throughout the book of Corinthians is, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's desperate desire for the church to be a credible witness for the community. Like, you're not just placed here to play church, but, but there's something bigger at stake. There's a bigger story, and that part of that story is, is that you and I have to be a credible witness to the gospel in the community that God has placed us in. So how do we, how do, we do that? Well, you got to do hard things. That's what Paul said last week in chapter 5. If a brother or sister is caught in ongoing unrepentant sin, the most healthy thing a church can do for the individual and the church is to remove that brother or sister from the church. Right? You've got to remove the dead so that things can grow and thrive. Right? That's Paul's picture that he paints for us. Now this week, you know, something kind of interesting happens. There's some more conflict in the church. And for whatever reason, this conflict seems to have gotten out of hand. And so Paul is writing this week to specifically address a grievance and conflict that's happening in the church and help them see a better way. How do you handle conflict in the church? Okay, and there's three different arguments that Paul makes in these 11 verses. Here's the first one. You ready? The first one is this, that what happens in the family needs to stay in the family. That's Paul's first argument that he's going to make in verse 1. We're going to look at it here in just a second. Is that what happens in the family needs to stay in the family. You'll see it in verse 1. Paul writes, he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that we are to judge angels? Well, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why in the world would you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Paul says, I, I don't say this to your credit, but I say this to your shame. Right? So here's Paul's beef. Paul's beef is that there's a dispute, there's a grievance that's happening in the church. And Paul says that when that happens... When there's a grievance, when a brother or a sister wrongs you within the community of faith that we have here at First Baptist Belton, that there ought to be a process for us to handle that 
and it shouldn't be running to the court system. Not there's anything wrong with the court system, but Paul is saying we should handle it amongst one another, that we should handle it within the community of faith. Now, to make his point, Paul mentions this grievance. We don't have a clue what the grievance is, by the way. We don't know what it is. We're not living in first century Corinth. We don't know what the grievance is. None of the scholars know what the grievance is. It could be associated to the young man who was sleeping with his stepmom. I would imagine that would bring a pretty significant grievance to the church, right? You know, some people say that it had something to do with land. There's inheritance language. Well, maybe it was land. Maybe it was, you know, two brothers went into business with one another and one wronged one another. We don't know what the grievance was. The other thing that we also don't know is we don't know what Paul means by the fact that Christians, he calls them the saints, which believers in Christ. We don't know what he means by the fact that he says that that the saints will judge the world and even the angels. We don't really know what Paul means there. Maybe he's, you know, reaching back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, where he tells the disciples that the disciples are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. And he kind of, right after that, Jesus lumps in the rest of his followers with that. And so maybe, maybe there's, maybe that's what he means by that. We don't really know. Here's what we do know. What we do know is what Paul says. And Paul says that there is a day coming where the Christians, the true followers of Jesus who have submitted their lives to him, there is a day coming where the saints will judge the world. And there's a day where that judgment, the angels will sit under that judgment as well. Now, I don't think that's the point. I think the point that Paul is trying to help us see is that if Christians, if, if, if we have the power and the authority to discern right and wrong in eternity, how in the world can we not discern right and wrong on this earth? You tracking that? I think Paul's point here is to help us see that how in the world, if if this is the case, if this is true, that there's a day coming where we're going to judge in eternity, if we're going to have that role, whatever that means, but that's going to be given to us, How in the world, then, can we not help people get along in the church today? If that's the role and responsibility that we're going to hold, how in the world can you and I not help one another just get along? To work through hard things, to work through disputes, to work through grievances. That's Paul's point. Now, Paul would say, this is to our shame that we couldn't. And even in verse 5, he says, well, maybe this is the reason why. He asks a question. He says, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to handle a dispute between the brothers? Could it be that there's nobody wise enough, there's nobody mature enough in the church to be able to handle trivial disputes, as Paul calls it? Oh, what a shame. What a shame that we wouldn't have anybody mature enough in the faith who's godly enough to be able to handle trivial pursuits of daily life, trivial grievances and disputes. How in the world could we not have somebody in the church who is wise enough to help us work these things out? Especially when Jesus has given us a step-by-step process in Matthew chapter 18. I talked about it last week. We'll talk about it a little bit more in length. Jesus gives us a step-by-step process for how you and I are to handle grievances in the church. How we handle, if somebody sins against me, this is how I should handle that. Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus says this. 
He says, if your brother sins against you, he says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, well, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, if you can't experience reconciliation by that point, consider him an unbeliever. That's what Jesus is saying. And so he, here Jesus gives us the kind of the step-by-step process that you and I today in the church in February of 20, February 25th of 2024, this is how you and I are supposed to handle disputes between one another. Here's what we do. You sin against me, I go to you. And I say, hey, brother, sister, you have sinned against me. You've hurt my feelings. You have hurt me. You have wounded me. Guess what that means? There is a level of reconciliation where you are going to have to enter into conflict. Conflict. Conflict is a good thing. There's bad conflict and there's good conflict. But good conflict is the kind of conflict that leads to reconciliation. You will not experience reconciliation on this earth with brothers and sisters if you are not willing to enter into a level of conflict with them. Jesus is saying you have to enter into conflict with a brother or a sister who has hurt you. If you're going to experience any sort of reconciliation, it's going to take that. And then if you can't, rec- if you can't ex- get to a place of reconciliation, then take one or two others with you. And then if you can't do that, then you take it to the church. You take it to the church, you would bring it before the elders. And that's an opportunity for the elders to sit and to serve as mediators between brother and brother, sister and sister, to help you guys work through your stuff. And we all have stuff. But Jesus' point here is that a healthy church, I think Paul agrees, a healthy church is a church that doesn't avoid conflict, but enters into it for the sake of reconciliation. Now, here's the kind of the caveat, right? The caveat is that I do not think that Paul's intent is for the church to become a judicial branch of the government. I don't think that's what Paul's point is. I think it's to offer the church as a home for reconciliation. I don't, I don't think that the church is set up to be the government. If somebody in this church shoots another person in this church, don't come to me. Go to the police. Right? That's not what Paul's saying. Paul's talking about grievances in the body. He's talking about sin in the body. That when you sin against me, you gossip against me, I go to you. Right? That's what, Paul, that's what Paul's saying here. And so if, if you can't receive or if you can't get to a point where you, you achieve some sort of reconciliation, the last stop is the elders of the church. And surely the elders of the church are wise enough, mature enough to be able to handle it and to be able to help you navigate through your grievance. Now, I will also say, keep in mind that if it does have to go all the way to the elders, it is not the elders' responsibility to play the judge and the jury. That's not what elders do. They serve as arbitrators of reconciliation between parties. Right? So Paul's saying, hey, listen, you have a grievance. We're all going to have a grievance at some point. Keep it in the body. 
there's no reason to take it outside of the body into the court system. Now, the second thing that Paul says, second argument that he makes, is that there is no win if I win. So in matters of conflict, there is no win if I win. That's the attitude that you and I ought to have in matters of conflict in the body. By the way, this is a great uh, point of application for your marriage or for your parenting. There's no win if I win. Paul writes in verse 7, he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. So if you take me to court, we've already lost. That's Paul's point. We've already lost. Why not suffer wrong, Paul says. Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourself wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Let me explain it this way. A good friend of mine has put it this, put it this way. It, it, it doesn't matter who's right. It doesn't matter who's right. What matters is reconciliation. Reconcil- reconciliation is more important than who is right. You should write that down. You should memorize it. You should it ought to be on the forefront of your memory that in your fights and in your conflict it doesn't matter who's right what's more important is are you reconciled that is a biblical worldview for how you and I have conflict right so think about it this way if we're in conflict who wins if I win in that conflict if you think about that Well, I do. Well, that's a problem. Because if you would say, well, I win, well, then, that, then I win. For Christianity, a biblical worldview, you might think that, that you won that argument, you won that fight. But I think what Paul would say is that you may have won, but the church lost. Because what's more, more important is not who wins the battle, not who wins the argument, not who wins the conflict. The most important thing in the church is reconciliation. To be a healthy church means that we have to be a reconciled people. We have to be a reconciled people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul makes this bold claim. He says that Christians are made new in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. And because of that, we are now ambassadors his kingdom. And so, here's the point. How can we be ambassadors and represent his kingdom if you and I can't get along? If you guys can't get along. Paul would go on to say that we are ministers of reconciliation. How then can I be a minister of reconciliation on this earth <laughs> if, and I'm pointing people back to the one who reconciles all things to himself, how can I rightly point people back to God as the one who reconciles if I can't even reconcile with the people in the church. Right? It matters for the sake of our witness. See, Jesus would say in John chapter 17, one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible, in verses 20 through 23, he says it very clearly. He says that the way that you and I relate to one another will either bring credibility to the gospel it will discredit the gospel. So the way that you and I reconcile, not avoid, but reconcile. The way that you and I pursue unity together 
is either going to credit the gospel message on this earth, in our community, or it's going to discredit the gospel message in our community. And sadly, we live in a world that is broken and has no clue what it means to reconcile with one another. And so when you and I refuse to reconcile with each other, well, we don't have anything to offer a broken world. We have no hope to offer. We have no solution to offer. And so I think what Paul is saying here is that you and I, as the body of Christ, ought to be mature enough to be able to handle disputes in the body. Paul would even say that we ought to be willing to suffer wrong if it means reconciliation. He says that here, um, well, let me, let me go back. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, here's what Jesus has to say about our reconciliation. Verse 38, here's what Jesus says. He says, have you heard that it was said, for an, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, in other words, this is Jesus agreeing with Paul. Maybe Paul agreeing with Jesus. I don't know how we want to look at that. But regardless, what they're doing here is they're giving us a worldview for us to understand that we ought to be willing to suffer wrong, to suffer derision for the sake of reconciliation, being made right with one another. <laughs> to put it bluntly, that means that we ought to be humble rather than proud. When I am more interested in me and mine, when I resort to fighting with one another, when I avoid conflict and allow bitterness to develop, when I choose to gossip because someone did me wrong instead of pursuing them in reconciliation, I'm hurting the church and I'm discrediting the gospel in the community. And so I want you to think about it. When you're, in your, if you're at your dinner table, wherever it is that you're at, maybe you're eating out, and you're talking poorly about a brother or sister in Christ, what is that doing for your witness? What is it doing for your witness in the business place? When you're entering into business with another Christian brother, and that Christian brother does you wrong, do you take him to court or do you take him to the church? When we treat one another like the world, we become like the world. And when we become like the world, we lose our credibility in this community. Again, we have nothing else to offer. So Paul says that we've got to keep it in the family. Paul says, hey, listen, if, if I win, nobody wins. And then thirdly, here's the third argument that Paul makes. That knowing who we are directs where we're going. Knowing who we are directs where we're going. In Corinth, they've got a serious case of what I'm calling culture creep. Culture creep. There's two things I think that are happening. Right? You've got tons of people who are moving to, moving to, to Corinth. It's a happening metropolitan place which is just us is great you've got all these people from all over the place who are moving to Corinth which is a great thing for the church because that's more people to preach the gospel 
It's more people that can believe. It's more people that can join the church. And I think that's exactly what's happening. You've got all these people who are moving all over the place. They're hearing the gospel. They're believing. They're joining the church, which is awesome. But here's the deal. They're unbelievers who are now becoming believers, which means that their unbelieving stories are following them into the church. Right? Just because you accept Christ doesn't mean that your story is just over. Right? That Now you're... You may have been justified, but now you're entering into the sanctification process where you're, letting, you're learning to let go of the world and you're, you're learning what it means to hold on to Christ. Right? That's, that's the whole point. You're letting the past go and behold, the new has come. So you're pr- pressing on into uh, your sanctification. You're pressing on into what it means to follow Jesus. You're learning what that is, right? And so you've got a lot of their culture that's followed them into the church. But then sadly, the church who should be discipling them raising them up, to teaching them what it means to follow Jesus, aren't mature enough to do that. Because they too are also following the culture. And so you've got this huge problem in Corinth where you have new believers who are, are looking to figure out what it means to follow Jesus, but you don't have mature enough believers to be able to help them learn what it means to follow Jesus. And so you have this huge problem. And that's what the church in Corinth is facing. And that's why Paul writes in verse 9, here's what he says. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He says, do not, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor, uh, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's point here is not to bash the lost, but to draw a line. Right, we've used this text to bash those outside of the church. That's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is not to to bash the lost, but rather to draw a line to help us see what it looks like to be lost and what it looks like to be saved. Paul asks them this question because he wants them to, to analyze, are you saved? And if you are saved, then you need to live like you are. Right? That's why Paul would go on to say here in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Notice the grammar. He says, such were some of you. This is who you once were. It's not who you are now. He says, you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. He says, you're no longer who you used to be. You've been made new. And so if this is true, if, if you have been washed, if you have been sanctified, if you have been justified, if you have been, been men made new in Christ, then why in the world? Why in the world is there someone in the church who is sleeping with their father's wife? Why in the world are you still disputing with one another? Why in the world are you okay with the church living in un, ongoing unrepentant sin? Why in the world are you okay with the church looking just like the world? Do you not know? Do you not know that, that, that you've been purchased? That your body is no longer your own? Do you not know that you were made for more than your sinful appetites and desires? That's what, that's what the lost do. That's what the whole list, that whole list is, is indulging in my selfish desires. That's, that's what Paul's helping them see, that, that the lost, all they know to do is to indulge themselves. 
But he says, but you're not lost. You've been found. And not only have you been found, you've been made right. Not only have you been made right, but you're on this process of sanctification where you're, you're progressing to the image of Jesus. So then why in the world would you ever settle for gossiping about one another? Why in the world would you settle for having trivial pursuits with one another? Why in the world would you be okay with these things? In church, we have to answer for that. If you have been made new, if you have experienced the gospel in your life, why would you settle to live like the world? Why, why would you do that? I think one of two things, hear me, one of two things. Either one, you never believed what you thought you believed. You never believed what you thought you believed. The reason why Christians don't act like Christians is because they think they're a Christian and they're not. So either one, you think you are and you're not. And your life is screaming at you to help you see that somehow or another you got into the wrong boat. That's number one. Number two, I think it's sad that we have, had, we have churches filled with people who, like Paul, would say are not wise enough, are not mature enough to help our young believers learn what it means to follow Jesus. And so we raise generation after generation of, generation of people who, who, quite frankly, can't even doggy paddle in the shallow end. That's a problem for the church. It's a problem for our community. Because if, if we are not mature in the faith, and we are called ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, what are we reconciling people to? Well, we're not reconciling them to the Lord. Right? If we don't practice what we preach, what good are we? I want you to think about that long and hard. Is your life, does it measure with what the Bible says is biblical Christianity. I'm not talking about tradition. I'm not talking about what you've been told. I'm talking about from the book. From God's eternal word. Do we live like this? The church ought to be this special place on the earth that when people walk in, they experience something different. And that difference shouldn't be, you don't belong here. It should be, come on in. Let me show you the God who has reconciled me to him. That's what the church ought to be. But if we can't reconcile with one another, how in the world can we preach a message of reconciliation to God? Oh, we can't. And there go, we don't have a credible, credible leg to stand on in the community for the witness of the gospel. And by the way, that's what we're here to do. We're here to pursue the Lord. And as we do that, we're to be a credible witness for the community so that people go, man, that, I don't have that, I want that. And then we're available and we're ready because we take it seriously. Like Christianity is not a religion that you can just put in the corner. Right? It doesn't work that way. It's all encompassing. You know, we, we named our, our initiative All In, not because it's just about money. It's because God demands all of you. And I'm just telling you, he, he's not going to be satisfied with a portion of you. 
what we're going to talk about next week and a couple weeks down the road is that, that you are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. That the blood of Jesus was <laughs> purchased your life. And he didn't purchase a portion of you. He, he purchased all of you. <laughs> right, the, the, when we sing, it is well, I love it. He didn't purchase part of our sin. He purchased the whole of it. And when he purchased the whole of it, he purchased the whole of you. That's awesome and terrifying all at the same time. It's awesome that all of me has been purchased. That I do not own myself, but the Lord owns Logan Reynolds. The Lord owns his church. And so we're either going to glorify him by giving him all of us, or we're going to live a really pathetic version of Christianity that nobody really wants. It can't be a hobby. Christianity can't be a hobby for you. It's got to be all or nothing. John chapter 6, Jesus looks at his disciples. He says some crazy stuff like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And the crowds went, I don't know about this. And they left. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, you going to go too? And he says, Peter goes, well, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of life. Would you say the same? Would you say the same? Paul's intent in this passage is to help us see, to help us see that the Bible weighs in to every detail of our life. It's to articulate that the daily affairs of our life should be dominated by what is true of us. That we have been washed, that we've been sanctified, that we've been justified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So hear me. Let's live like it. Live like that's true of you. Live like you believe it's true. And by the way, you can't fake that. At some point, the light will dawn and it will expose it. And so I don't act like I love you. I love you. There's a difference. Right? We've got to love one another more than ourselves to be willing to enter into conflict for the health of the overall church. Who we are and what is true of us ought to permeate into every aspect of our life. Man, that's good. That's good. Let's go to the Lord and ask Him to do it. Father, we need your help in this. I need your help in this so bad. So bad because it seems like over and over and over again, Lord, you take me to this place where I think, man, I'm doing it. I'm, 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 I'm growing and I'm getting better and and then you expose more sin that needs to be confessed, that needs to be dealt with in my heart. And Lord, I thank you for that grace. Lord, your word tells us that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, it's your kindness, it's your goodness that would lead us to a place where you would expose our sin and you would help us to become healthy. And so Lord, I pray that for our church, Lord, that we would take your word seriously, that we would Take every thought captive, Lord, that we would be a church who, we don't just say that we are, that we've been washed. We don't just say that we've been sanctified and that we've been justified and that we've 
in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. Lord, that would not just be lip service, but that would be true of us, and that, that, that from that truth, it would flow into our relationships, that we wouldn't settle for anything less. God, I don't ever want us to be a church where we settle for less than what you have for us, that we would settle for this cheap life of self-indulgence, Lord, we would be passionate about your kingdom. We would chase your kingdom. We would chase you and that by chasing you, Lord, you would transform us and that we would offer the world and our community a credible witness, a hope that is lasting, that it is good and it's a foundation that can't be shaken and it can't be rocked. Father, I pray that for all of us this morning. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. stand and sing together.
Amen, amen. Hey, listen, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, today would be a great day to do that. Um, talking about reconciliation, I would love to help you find some reconciliation with the Lord. If maybe you're in, in that boat where, like I mentioned, you, maybe you thought, golly, maybe, maybe I need some help figuring out if I am or if I'm not. I'd love to talk with you to do that, and I'd love to pray with you as well. I'd love to, to be a, a resource for you in, in that regard. If you'd like to find a Bible study, Man, go right out here at Connection Central. They'd love to help you, point you in the right direction of a great group of folks who would love to love you and to help you grow up into the faith. Um, listen, my challenge for you this week is just to be who you are, right? <laughs> be washed, be sanctified, be justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. Live like you are. You know, it's, it's not easy, but if it were easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Be different. Be different for the sake of our church, for the health of our church, and for the sake of our community and the, the credible witness that we need to have in our, in our community. Uh, that's, that's my challenge for us, is just be who, be who you are. Be who you are. Thanks for worshiping with us this morning. I love you. Can't wait to see you guys next week. God bless you.